Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom, and we're here with Dawn of Lock Tote. And I'll get into what they do, but this is a really, really cool company. Uh, season 8, episode 22, air date of April 21st, 2017. Came in asking $150,000 for 5% of the business. So probably kicking some butt here. Uh, Lock Tote Industrial Bags, they're lockable bags that are slash free. So imagine like a really nice drawstring bag that you can't penetrate and break through and that you're able to lock. So, you know, it's funny as I was watching um, the pitch before we did this interview, you know, I, I thought, gosh, there's actually some really good uses for this. Cause I know I've been places and it's like, uh, it's not that I don't trust people, but I'm kind of far away from my stuff and it would be nice to lock it. Or if you're at the beach and, you know, just that peace of mind to where, you know, it's, it's somewhat safer. And so I thought that was really cool. Um, it's indestructible. It's safe. Uh, $179. And it was $75 to make them. Did a Kickstarter that raised $850,000 and another $650,000 on Indiegogo. So uh, had about 1.4 million of sales through those. Now, the company was very early, um, but just killed it on those two things, which to me, proof of concept for sure, ended up doing a deal with Robert. Now the deal was 150,000 for 10% of the company and a $10 royalty per bag until that money is recouped. So good deal for both sides. Didn't have to give up a ton of equity, had the margins to service the um, royalty. It wasn't in perpetuity. So Fair all around, really good, but um, you'll enjoy this interview and we'll talk afterwards about what we learned. So enjoy and we'll see you soon. All right, Don, welcome to Outside the Tank. It's great to have you here. Um, and you covered some of this when the, uh, at least the part that made air um, played out on TV, but give us the backstory on how you created this product. Um, it, it was really pretty simple. I had created a different invention prior to this one, and I was going to develop another product. Literally woke up one morning and uh, found a company on Kickstarter that had it developed something and launching it that solved the same problem my invention did. And this wasn't Loctote. And they solved it in a much better way. And I actually, you know, just shut everything down overnight, killed it, sent my people home, went into mourning the death of my invention for about six months. And at some point, my family wanted me, um, I just needed to pull my head out of my butt. So they decided maybe we needed a family vacation. So we all went to St. Croix. Um, I was on the beach late in the day snorkeling. The family was back in the room and I had left some stuff out on the beach, ear pods, cell phone, room key, and, and had it in my shoe and stuffed a t-shirt in it, right? Like everybody does, because that's perfectly safe. And, and I'm out in the water snorkeling and I watched some dude coming by the chair, you know, and, rummaging through my stuff and walk away like he had something i you know i yelled at the guy because i mean i was probably 50 yards out um by the time i got back he was gone my stuff was gone and you know i was in a bad mood for the vacation so that night you know i'm sitting in my room talking to my wife and uh you know i'm like why doesn't somebody like come up with something that you can bring to the beach like some kind of bag where you could lock your stuff up and like, and it's safe. I mean, I grew up on the beach in New Jersey and we had this problem all the time. Like we used to use an old dirty baby diaper and put our stuff in it because nobody would mess with it or, you know, we would bury it. So anyway, 
I go online. It's like, there's gotta be some kind of bag or something out there that would be cool that I can do this. So I, yeah, I do have my, I do bring my laptop on vacations. Um, so I'm looking for a, a product and like, this wasn't anything. And I, I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to invent some kind of bag that can do this. There's gotta be high tech fabrics and this and that and all kinds of weird textiles. And it's gotta be doable, like to make some kind of bag that I can lock and do stuff. And that's kind of how it started. You know, she was like, well, what do you know about inventing bags? I'm like, well, what do you know about having babies? And you did three. So like, you know, you kind of figure it out as you go. So that was sort of the beginning of it. So you ended up at a pretty high price point, $179. Walk us through, you know, did you have in your mind the entire time, I want this to be a high-end product, or did you just create something that you thought was really interesting and because of the cost associated, it led to that price point? It's the latter. I wanted to create a mass market product, but I wanted to create a good solid brand. If, if I would say what were the two sort of brands that I was modeling after at the time, it would be Yeti and Carhartt for a couple of reasons. Um, Carhartt, because it was just common everyday man construction pants and jackets that somehow because they stuck to who they were and their brand identity and their core, it became cool. And they never really tried to chase fashion or be the latest thing, right? You got brown Carhartt jacket with a corduroy collar and that was that. So that was kind of with the Lockto industrial bag company. That was kind of the direction I was going in. Over time, when I started looking into these textiles and I realized how damn expensive they were, I realized I had to become a premium product. And that's where I, I knew I needed to take on the Yeti model, right? You know, pre-Yeti, you know, what would you spend on a cooler? 30, 40 bucks? Anything beyond that just seemed too much. You know, and all of a sudden, $500 is not too much for a cooler. Well, that was kind of the same place with drawstring bags. I mean, what do you pay? $19? You get them for free if you run a 5K somewhere. So, you know, I had to kind of get past that too. And a lot of the people who sort of advised me and that I would talk to, you know, pretty much told me like nobody's going to pay that much for a drawstring bag. Um, I, I felt like they would. I mean, I thought it wasn't a drawstring bag I was selling. I was selling security and peace of mind. And, you know, if you look at it the right way, I, you know, and, and the cost that people have in their technology today, cell phones and headphones and sneakers, I thought we could make a, make a case with it. From the time you came up with the idea to the time you had a product in hand, how, how long did that process take? About a year, start to finish. I mean, I literally had no background in textile and sewing. So the first thing I did is I went to the hardware store and I bought duct tape and a roll of Tyvek because I couldn't sew prototypes. So I literally started cutting them out of Tyvek and, and taping them up. And then a buddy of mine's grandmother died and he, I got an old vintage sewing machine and I took it apart and rebuilt it and made it work. And then I learned how to sew. So, you know, that whole process took a some time and then I was sourcing in the process. And, you know, in during the sourcing, I also knew I needed to have some kind of IP or exclusive on something. So, you know, the first relationship that I cut with the textile supplier, I had to convince them to give me an exclusive on the fabric. They were making only shirts and like protective wear. And they weren't in the bag space, so it wasn't that hard to convince them. But, you know, I had to work through all that as well, um, you know, in that first year, as well as, you know, actually coming up with a model that actually worked. 
Don, what kind of market research did you do about that time that yielded some of the input? Who were you talking to? How were you gathering input for some of the early prototypes? Um, I mean, pretty much the same marketing research I do for everything. And it's probably not what most people want to hear, but I go with my gut. I mean, you know, I'm no kid. I've been around a while and you kind of, you, you, know, you see a lot of things. I know what works and what doesn't work. You know, I'm from New Jersey, from the East Coast, from New Jersey. And by nature, we're just kind of skeptical, hard people to deal with. And so I kind of figure if it passes me and I don't call bullshit on it, it's legit. Um, you know, I mean, did I know it would be successful? No, that was kind of what Kickstarter was for me, was to see if anybody else cared about this same problem that I cared about. You know, I didn't know if I was going to sell a thousand bags or one. I mean, I, I really didn't. So you, you designed it for an audience of one and you said, let me just build something that I think is cool and I would actually use. That's what it was initially, right? It was kind of, I mean, I always have in the back of my mind productizing something, but at first it's just kind of the design challenge of solving a problem. I mean, most of the products I've made over time and created, um, not most, I'm going to say all of them, grew out of some problem that I had or saw um, and just said, I... I, I Usually it involves me going, oh, I need to get one of these. And I go online to try to find it and it doesn't exist. And then the next thing always sounds like, well, why hasn't somebody created a whatever the thing is? And uh, usually if I, if I need it, somebody else does too. Don, I you... want to go, go backwards for a second. Am I to assume this wasn't your first rodeo as an entrepreneur? Kind of was. Um, I mean, I grew out of management consulting. I got a master's in finance. I grew a large um, consulting firm. They, we were especially consulting boutique in the energy industry. Um, we served utilities clients. So not really anything like this. I mean, I owned the company. So yes, I was an entrepreneur from that standpoint, but it certainly wasn't a product business. And then we sold that to a public company in 2010. So that's what gave me kind of the freedom to pursue this kind of thing. I'm curious about the Kickstarter thing because, you know, 850 grand, that's not an insignificant amount of money. And I, I think certainly proves that there was a market for what you thought would be pretty cool. Did you hire anyone to help you with the Kickstarter? Did you build it all yourself? And how long did it take you to raise that money? Um, well, it was a 50 day campaign. So Ooh. it took 50 days to raise the money. Um, I mean, we used a couple of these little backer clubs, you know, kind of thing where you give a discount to some people that have signed the club, you know, and they kind of, you get some early bids. But um, for the most part, it was just outreach. Like, you know, I, I get calls or emails from people want, wanting to know how much did we spend on Facebook advertising? Zero, not a dollar. I didn't spend a dollar on, on any advertising. I mean, luckily, it was an innovative and cool enough product. And, you know, it was just convincing enough that it started to take on a life of its own. Um, I mean, we reached, I reached out to everybody I could. I mean, I did a fair amount of, of certainly grassroots outreach, but at the end of the day, it, it took on its own life. You had a, a $1.4 million of sales, I think at the time of uh, filming what was the primary distribution point for the for those sales at that juncture? Oh, at that point, it was pure Kickstarter and Indiegogo. I mean, the oh. other six fifty or whatever was you know was Indiegogo. 
Gotcha. They um they had us on the show very early, and I didn't want to be on the show at that point in time. I talked to the producers because, you know, the problem with Shark Tank, and I even see it more so today, the people on there, they're not companies. They're a product. And, and I knew at that point I was just a product. I wasn't a company. And I wanted to push it back. And they were like, no, you need to do it now. You may never have the opportunity again. And it's like, you know, I, I, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get in front of the sharks. They're going to tell me I'm not proven. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. We haven't stood the test of time. And I'm going to go, I know, because your producers wouldn't wait and give, you know, have the patience to let me come back after I stood the test of time. And I think, you know, I even watched when I watch it today and I see them, well, you're too young. My guess is the entrepreneurs would have preferred to have waited, but didn't have the option. And did they find you on Kickstarter and recruit you to be on the show? Yeah, they found us. We didn't do any kind of like application, audition or anything. In fact, they found us and they pursued us. Because when I got the original, I think it was a voicemail from a casting director, you know, and I was, I was actually out of town at our manufacturers. I thought it was purely one of my friends screwing with me. So I ignored it, you know, completely. I'm like, all right, that's really funny. And then it showed up again. You know, like she called a week later and I'm like, all right, come on. Like whoever this is, knock it off. So I had the guy I was working with, Adam. I'm like, Adam, can you just go out and poke around on the internet, see if there's somebody that works at Shark Tank, you know, for ABC with this name and so forth. And he came back and it's like, yeah, I think it's legit. I mean, I think that's a real casting director. So I called her back and, you know, that was it. When you guys aired, what were those first couple of days afterwards like in terms of sales and just your life in general? It's crazy. I mean, you know, you hear all the stories of websites going down and not being able to handle, you know, the volume. So we knew that would happen, too. So, I mean, we were just on some little, you know, very inexpensive hosting plan from GoDaddy. But we knew that we needed to you know, be more robust. So we had switched providers. We went with Rackspace. We had this kind of managed hosting plan where they actually had people sitting there, you know, watching it, monitoring it, spinning up additional servers, right? So at one point, you know, we had about 20,000 people on our website. And what was happening is transactions were failing, right? And I couldn't figure out why, right? It's, it's like, come on, we got volume. We, we spun up 22 servers, right, to keep it going. But randomly, transactions were failing. We couldn't figure out why. Turns out that on the payment gateway, there's a velocity filter, right, to look out for DDoS attacks. So the velocity filter was seeing so much volume that it thought we were under a DDoS. So, you know, individual servers, right? There's 22 of them running. This one here might decide to shut down or this one, then it would come back up. So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, people came back and, and bought, but it, it was very busy. And so what what happened following you airing and, you know, walk us through that was, gosh, that was uh, five years ago now. So what happened following that? Well, so you definitely have a lift and a glow right after Shark Tank. And I would say the lift in our sales probably lasted about seven weeks. Right. You know, and slowly kind of tapered off. And then you would see blips again. Right. As as you rerun. Um, you know, but what also came out of it that was more significant was the exposure <coughs> to develop relationships, right, to meet, you know, distributors and suppliers and so forth. So that, you know, has a lasting effect um, over time. Um, you know, and Shark Tank just gives you a little bit of credibility, but, you know, you're not, you're not 
allowed to put anything on your website or really do much, you know, do much, you know, I mean, yes, you can say you were on it because it's just a fact, but you can't use their logo and so forth. So it gives you a little bit of credibility. Um, but I mean, you know, just to kind of get you up to now, I sold the company uh, probably three years ago now. Um, I don't believe it. It didn't really have anything to do with Shark Tank. I mean, they found me in a different way. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, it was not directly related to that. When you uh, when you got ready to uh, have the liquidation event, the the acquisition about that time, how had distribution changed? I noted that a couple of the sharks, specifically uh, 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 Cuban and probably Mister Wonderful, just hated the idea of retail. Hated the idea of you going into Walmart, which was their you know perspective, yeah. but. What happened yeah. with distribution as, as you move towards the acquisition? We, we I mean, we, we had a few wholesale suppliers um, or, or, you know, wholesale distributors. Um, we went through a few different um, sites that sell things, Touch of Modern, Bags.com, that kind of thing. Um, I, I just didn't like dealing with those. You just don't have control over things. They want special deals. They, they pimp your product, they, you know, they, they price it where you don't want it to be. So we eventually got away from that. So by the time I sold the company, we were purely selling out of our online store, our Shopify store, and we'd gotten pretty good at the digital marketing and on Amazon. And that was, you know, and then we had a few distributors um, overseas with different websites and a couple brick and mortars. But for the most part, you know, it was Amazon and our own web store. What, uh, I'm curious, did you enjoy the business or was the exit just something you had earmarked and planned and, and welcome for the sake of um, both? Um, I mean, you know, I, most people build a company to ultimately sell it. Um, you know, I, you know, I mean, I like to have options. I build a company hoping to ultimately sell it, but I build it in a way that if I have to keep it for life, I'm happy with it too. Right. So, um, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. There was challenges with that product that I didn't like, um, things I hadn't foreseen. Um, you know, for example, when you create a product with a big, bold claim, the first thing everybody wants to do is prove you wrong or, or show you a liar. So if you say it's resistant to something, the first thing they're going to do is try to post videos all over on how it's not resistant to the thing you said, right? And, they're going to be all over YouTube and they're going to call you names and they're going to, you know, say you lied. The other thing is when you have a product like that, like the first thing people do when they take it out of the bag is they want to see how tough it is. And they go out into their toolbox and they get all these sharp objects and tools and they start going at it. And eventually they make some kind of hole or damage it and they send it back and they go, oh, you guys sent me a bag with a hole in it. It's like, no, I doubt we did, you know, so I, I would never want to deal with a product like that again because it, it's just frustrating and it's challenging. And there's just people who are just cr trolls that just want to try to figure out some way to make a liar out of you to show that, that you know, like they're the consumer's advocate and they destroyed your product. And then the product, because its cost was so high when people did destroy it, by the time I sent my second bag out, right, to, to them, I was underwater. I mean, you know, it would just wasn't enough margin on it to really, you know, keep that going. 
Yeah, it's almost like you you have to uh, say it's almost um, indestructible, except for you morons there that intend on. <laughs> yeah, somebody is going to find something, right? I mean, it's so impractical, right? I mean, yeah, somebody's going to show up on the beach with some of this stuff, you know. Hey, I cut it in half with a water jet. Oh, okay. Well, you know, a lot of people walking around with those. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. Did you stay? Did you stay manufacturing in the U.S. or did you end up going overseas? No, we had to go overseas. Um, I mean, right up, right off the bat with our Kickstarter, our U.S. manufacturer could not scale and would not scale. I mean, they were able to produce like fifty a day, and they they didn't want to invest. And then the only U.S. companies that could deal with this textile were companies that were doing Department of Defense type work. And what would happen is if when the DOD needed something, you know, all their contracts specify that they take precedence over any private sector work. So my line would get shut down so companies could, you know, so they could make stuff for the U.S. government. And, yeah, there was ways around it, but it's like, do you really want to figure out a way around it? So some guy in Iraq didn't have his bulletproof vest because I wanted my Kickstarter bags. So it just had to do it. The other thing is my price and my quality went up when I went to China. My quality and consistency went way higher because so much more was automated. My price was a, almost one-tenth on the labor, Point one. Wow. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. That's hard to ignore. It, it, it really is. I mean, Made in the USA was part of our original pitch, but, you know, yeah, Made in the USA, if I want make 50 a day. Uh, Two-part question. Um, share what you can share about the uh, the deal, whether just whether it came together or not. Just curious. I know Robert during the filming. Robert swooped in. He, I think, he used the word pounce. He pounced at the end. Uh, did that deal happen? And then, really, the bigger part of the question is, what can you share about the process of the uh, uh, acquisition that you went through, and that you can share with a lot of our audience who may face a, a similar opportunity or or maybe intention yeah so the deal did not go through so and not that we didn't intend to i mean we went in with good faith but by the from when we started talking to shark tank to when we actually filmed shark tank the business was in a much different place i had a strategic partner um that was probably as wealthier as robert maybe wealthier who had you know, multiple factories in China, had an office in China, and had 265,000 square feet of distribution here. He became an equity partner. So I really didn't need capital. There wasn't a lot I needed. So by that point, you know, the only thing Robert could really provide to me that I felt was just maybe sprinkling some social media pixie dust every now and then, um, you know, or, or, or opening a door. So it wasn't a huge value, but I did want to do the deal. But it was just too hard to get it done. I mean, he was going to be a 10% owner of the company. And when you're a 10% owner, you know how much decision-making authority you have? Zero. You're along for the ride. That's it. Let me tell you what I did, but, you know, and I'd like to listen to what you have to say, but you have no control. You have no anything. You know, I'll let you know how it went, right? 10%. So at the end of the day, um, it just wasn't going to work. I didn't need them. It was very expensive for the what I was going to be getting. 
and uh, we we just agreed that it made sense for us to part ways. So that's how that deal did not happen, right? So we continued to operate, you know, a couple years. You know, we were still operating beyond that. Um, at one point, I felt like we were starting to stagnate. I had three people working for me full time. Um, one of them, you know, did my digital marketing. One was customer service and would work in the warehouse and oversee the team doing fulfillment. And uh, another one just created content for me, digital assets, videos, and so forth. And I felt like all we were ever doing was creating content, trying to come up with another video. And it's like, you know what? I don't think people really care that much. The other thing at that point that I noticed is our conversion rate was really poor. So we were having great push through our ads. We were getting people to the website, you know, with really good numbers, but they weren't converting. So they were getting to our website and for some reason they were disappointed. They weren't seeing what they wanted or there was no sense of urgency or a call to action to get them to pull the trigger, right? So I'm like, guys, listen, we just need to kind of revamp this. So, uh, you know, I did a couple of things. I said, number one, we don't need to keep producing content all the time. We need to just find one good ad and video that we like and let's just stick with it and drive it, you know, drive it hard and drive it all the time. So I ended up letting that guy go. I said, the other thing is, and I was always very much a brand advocate. I didn't want a discount. I didn't want sales, right? Other than a few times a year, right? You got to keep the brand strong. But I, I think that was part of the reason of people getting to the website and having no urgency to buy, right? It's like, oh, this is nice, but it's no sale. It's very expensive. If I ever go on vacation or need one of these, I know where to go, right? So I'm like, for now on, we're going to have a sale all the time, every day. I don't care what it is. Labor Day, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Halloween, Thanksgiving, day before Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever. It's a sale all the time. Let's jack our prices 20% and let's always have a 20% sale and always be giving a deal and a code. So we switched to that and our engagement, our conversion rate and our sales basically hockey sticked. I mean, it really did. It just turned a corner and went straight up. So it's the best thing we ever did. In doing that, um, there's a lot of private equity companies and investors out there that are pretty technically savvy. And they have software and scripts and so forth that run around looking at e-commerce businesses and they look for ones that are increasing in engagement, social media engagement, web engagement, you know, e-commerce engagement. Because if you think about it, and in their minds, those are companies that are probably heading into a growth spurt. And if they're young companies, they're probably in need of capital to grow. And we can help them is kind of how they viewed it. So I literally got reached out to by a company on LinkedIn who found us using a tool that they had coded. That because our engagement had just like spiked that we just, you know, got on their radar and, and, and that's how it, how it went. So did they, did they want to buy you and run it themselves? Did you stick around? How did that work out? I stuck around for, a, I stuck around for three months full time through the transition and a year available, but you know, we're, we're now what, four or five years past. They bought other things from me. And they know they can still pick up the phone to call me anytime on any business with any question and any problem, anything they need, you know, they'll still get it from me. I mean, that's just 
the relationship and, and just the kind of guys they are and and I am so so they um, found you completely out of the blue yeah no I literally think their wow. tool found me wow and I what? you know I got it I got a uh, introduction message on LinkedIn and you know you get those all the time but normally sure. you can tell their form letters and their BS and you know I could tell that you know this one had some thought into it and it was legit and when I researched the guy you know I could see he was legit um, so we just went from there. Wow. As you look back and you know obviously a lot of entrepreneurs listen to these that's that's why I like to ask them um, are there any big mistakes that you made that you'd like to have had back anything that you look back and you kind of cringe at like, Oh, what the hell was I thinking on that one? No, bad things happened. Um, but there's nothing I could have done. Like we got knocked off early on, um, by a company out of, out of Germany that was making a really low end, you know, knockoff of our product and, uh, you know, violated everything. Um, eventually all their products failed and they kind of disappeared because, you know, they weren't going to follow through on warranties. You know, we had IP, we had a patent file, we had a provisional patent and our utility patent was filed, but utility patent takes like three years. Um, but I would tell anybody and everybody, protect your IP. Um, Eventually, this stuff will go through and you can go after those people and you can't shut them down. But the other thing is, I have never sold a company where somebody didn't want to see protected IP. Otherwise, you have no asset, right? From day one, the first thing you need, you know, I would recommend any entrepreneur do is figure out what your IP is and figure out how you can protect it. You know, and a lot of times, you know, I would never want to litigate a patent, right? It's a seven figure, you know, endeavor. Um, it, and it's just a disaster and it's a gray area, but you need to have it nonetheless. It's just an asset you need to have on your books. But as far as pure mistakes, I mean, I don't know, I've been around the block a lot, so I'm having a hard time. I guess if there's any mistake, it's just, you got to test the crap out of your product and you got to really understand the quality of everything you do. You can't let something go into production if you're not 100% sure of it, because if it's a little bit of a problem early on in one or two, or when you're just playing with it, it will become a huge problem down the road. And the earlier you can solve problems and fix them and catch them. And even if you, even if you get something from a supplier and you're not happy with it and you have to throw it away and eat it, it's still cheaper than manufacturing a product with a subpar component, um, it'll get you in the end. It'll destroy your brand. Any major lessons that emerged? Anything that you learned? I mean, this was probably a really interesting experience for you, but I'm just curious if there's anything along the way that were really enlightening lessons that maybe hit um, your radar. You know, go in with a product that has huge margins because things are just going to erode your margins along the way that you didn't foresee. And if you don't start out with like a whole lot of room, you're going to end up pretty quickly in a business that's very difficult um, to manage. Another thing is, and you know, and I've seen this with every business that I've had, um, 
at some point you're just going to hate it. You're just going to grow to hate your business. You're going to grow to hate your company. It's going to stress you out. It's going to make you miserable. And you wish you could find somebody to just unload it on and give it to. Um, and I've been there with every company I've ever had. And every entrepreneur I know has been in the same place. And you just got to- The honest grow. ones have been. Yeah, exactly. And you just got to grind through it. I mean, you will you will get to that point and you will feel it. Um, but if you're passionate about what you're doing you'll and your, your product's good, you'll, you'll get past it. Um, you know, you, you, you can't throw in the towel if you believe in it. Final question, what, what's keeping you busy these days? Uh, several new products. Um, so I'm getting ready to launch some, some pretty cool stuff. I, I can't really talk about it yet. Um, one, is a, uh, one is a drink product. One is a uh, consumer product. And actually one is, is an app. So I'm kind of all over the board. I'm pretty busy. And are you, do you have uh, partners in those businesses? Are you doing them yourself or are you minority partner? Different partners in different things, right? I don't have a core of like who my people are. I sort of pick and choose the components of, you know, who I know and what they can bring to the table for everything. You know, I'm, I'm a one man business incubator to a point, right? And then I have to bring in other people um, and I bring in, people who are good at the things I suck at. Right. And, you know, I guess there's another lesson. Um, that's probably a big one. Know what you suck at and don't be afraid to admit what you suck at and find the best people who are good at it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, but people that think they're the best at everything, um, they're not, and you probably won't succeed. So know what you suck at and admit it. <laughs> admit it and offset it. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, every business partner I've had, you know, has always gone great. We appreciate each other. We marvel at what the other guy does because we do things, we each do things the other one can't do. So I watch him doing things and it's like, my God, I'm so glad I'm happy. I have you because you, I can't do that. And same way with them. And that's a proper partnership, right? That's when, you know, a business is going to work. Have you ever had a partner that's just great at everything? In the consulting firm, I did. Yeah, um, I think so. But, you know, the problem is you can't be great at everything after a certain point in time, right? Not if you want to scale, right? You can't be great at everything, including scaling, right? <laughs> because there's just not enough hours in the day and just not enough bandwidth. So you can only be great in everything for a little while. My partner was waiting for the joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the compliment. Well, Don, this was this was a lot of fun. I think there were a lot of really good takeaways for uh, those listening. So we we so appreciate your time and you know being uh, open and vulnerable with us. And uh, we'll stay connected on LinkedIn. And I look forward to uh, your upcoming uh, ideas and projects. And uh, probably a, probably a really interesting uh, person to follow on there. So no, I'm, I'm going to be, gonna be uh, launching something on Kickstarter probably within the next 90 days. So I'll circle back with you guys. Maybe give me a, give me a shout out and we can all watch together how it does. Oh, no, we, we'd love to push that inside our community and uh, tell people about it. So please put us on your uh, distribution list to, to let know about that stuff. And, and we'll uh, share it with our listeners and people we know in our various businesses. So that'd be great. Appreciate it.
Hey, All right. Don, you pleasure. Too. Thanks. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. We're back. And I I don't know how many times I've taken more notes than this. There were, there were a lot here. I'll, I'll fly through some of them. Uh, what, a, what a great interview and a great entrepreneur. Um, focusing on building a brand. You know, he talked about Carhartt and Yeti, just two very well-respected brands. So building that brand was really important. Um, 50 days of Kickstarter, they raised $850,000. So if you have a product like this, do a Kickstarter. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you know, I wrote down a note of, you know, do great ideas even need paid ads, right? Like, I, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, maybe you don't need to beg people to, you know, buy your product if you can spread the word and people tell their friends and share it. And so, you know, that's kind of the situation they were in. Um, you know, they follow that sale all the time uh, on their website uh, mentality. You know, we'll do an ad, we'll do, uh, you know, the big sale right now, but they always have a sale. And I think that's actually a pretty cool idea. I know I fall for it, right? Oh, it's 20% off. I, I got to buy this immediately. It ends tomorrow. And then a week later, it ends tomorrow again. So anyways, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, talked about protecting your IP and, you know, making sure that you're, uh, you know, really being cognizant of, of who's trying to rip you off. Um, this is a big one, going in with a high margin product because a lot's going to erode that margin later on. We always think, oh, I'll just make up for it in volume. Make sure that on unit one, there's a profit in there because if there's not, then you know it's not going to get bigger over time. It's going to shrink for the cost of shipping going up and the cost of everything else going up and your marketing expenses. Now we got to hire people because we're really busy. Margins go down over time. They don't magically go up. So being very conscientious of that and... Uh, <laughs> I thought this was a great quote and I, I completely agree with it. And I think many people that don't agree with it are liars, but uh, he said, you'll eventually hate your business. And I think it's true. Not every day, not all day, but you know, there's aspects of this that are really hard. And in my experience and what I suggest to entrepreneurs is it's okay to hate your business sometimes and put away your laptop, go do a hobby, Go spend time with people that you care about. Um, if you come back and you still hate it, then figure out what aspects of it you hate and find people on your team or outsource to do those things. And if you can't afford anyone else to do any of those things, then your margins are too small. And if you still really hate the business after all that, then maybe you're in the wrong business. But there's ways to fix some of that stuff. But I think the worst thing you can do is go, oh, I hate my business and I'm always gonna hate my business and I'm not gonna admit I hate my business because I'm supposed to love this and be super passionate about it at all times. That's not true. It's okay to hate your business. We all do it. Some of us just admit it and try to solve it. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this. I really did. And uh, we'll see you next week on an all new episode of Outside the Tank.